Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Greetings. I am delighted to welcome Stuart Ashman to the People Are Culture podcast. Stuart is CEO of Santa Fe's International Folk Art Market, the world's largest folk art festival. This July 12th through the 14th, the market will celebrate the 16th annual gathering of the world's master folk artists, with over 150 artists from 50 countries participating. The mission of the International Folk Art Market is to create economic opportunities for and with folk artists worldwide who celebrate and preserve folk art traditions. The International Folk Art Market envisions a world that values the dignity and humanity of the handmade, honors timeless cultural traditions, and supports the work of folk artists serving as entrepreneurs and catalysts for positive change. Since its founding, the International Folk Art Market has generated total sales of over 30 million and impacted an estimated 1.3 million lives worldwide. Stewart is a cultural ambassador who has worked in the arts for over 30 years. From 2003 to 2010, he served as secretary of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs. He has also held leadership positions at the Center for Contemporary Arts in Santa Fe, the New Mexico Museum of Art, and the Museum of Spanish Colonial Art, both in Santa Fe, and the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach, California. It is a privilege and a pleasure to welcome Stuart to the People Art Culture podcast. Stuart, welcome, and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me and um, share with listeners of the People Art Culture podcast um, an overview of the International Folk Art Market, Santa Fe. Um, so I appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It'll be a pleasure. I'd like to start with a question I ask each of my guests, uh, which is, what is culture? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's defined in a lot of different ways, obviously. Uh, but uh, from our perspective, it's the customs, traditions, the arts, the social institutions, the attitudes, the achievements, the failures of a group of people, a nation, a tribe, etc. So really, it's a it's a conglomerate of things. Uh, you know, we often talk about corporate culture. Uh, so it's really how uh, how a group of people behaves. Uh, but in this case, uh, in our case, it's how they uh, act uh, coming from their traditional lives. Right. That's a very comprehensive uh, definition. And it's always fascinating to me that um, while culture is something that's universal, it's also personal. And we all have our own perceptions of what it's about. Having given me your definition, um, can you offer your perspective on why culture matters? Well, you know, obviously, um, we learn from each other. 
uh, as a people. And so uh, it's fascinating to learn about other cultures. I mean, everybody agrees that's what travel is all about is to meet other people and see their customs, traditions, arts, etc. So it really is important uh, as a way of understanding the rest of humanity. You know, one of the things that we say when we gather all of the artists on the Santa Fe Plaza in their native costumes, uh, and they're all standing there, you know, 150 artists from 50 countries uh, and maybe 1,500 people from the public. And we say, this is what world peace looks like. Mm. So understanding each other uh, is uh, is part of what uh, culture offers. That's great. That's a very visual uh, description. Um, <laughs> now, uh, the International Folk Art Market, Santa Fe, is the world's largest folk art festival. And this year, um, it celebrates uh, the 16th annual gathering of the world's master folk artists uh, with over 150 artists from 50 countries, um, as you said, and including 45 first-time artists, um, as well as artists from three countries never before represented at the market, which are Australia, Bulgaria, and Iraq. Um, can you talk about the criteria that's used to select the artists and what the decision-making process is? Sure. You know, we have, um, I mean, recruiting the artists is always a question that gets asked. Um, and, you know, we have, I mean, we have supporters and folk art market attendees that uh, travel the world, you know, on vacation and come across some of these artists and encourage them to apply. We have a very strenuous application process, which often needs uh People need, artists need help translating. Uh, you know, it asks questions like, how did you become an artist? You know, how, how did you learn this particular craft, et cetera? Uh, and so this year we had 700 applicants and we have two committees, one made up of uh, specialists and uh, experts in particular areas. So you might have two people that know Asian textiles, uh, one or two people that know contempor uh, contemporary naive painting, etc. And so they are called the selection committee and they pare down those 700 applicants to a little over 200 or 250 uh, based on uh, criteria of excellence that, uh, that are defined in their guidelines. And then we have a group called the select the uh, the placement committee, and they take those 250 and pare it down to what we can accommodate in terms of our physical space. So this year we I think have 172 uh, invited artists from 51 countries, um, and uh, you know often uh, we don't get the 172 because of visas, because of personal issues somebody gets sick or they have problems um, shipping their material and so on. So we will definitely get, end up with over 150, maybe 160, but we do have 172 invited artists. Wow. And do they get assistance in terms of the logistics of well, attending? First year artists um, 
can apply for financial assistance. And we uh, raise funds to bring 30 of them with financial assistance. And what that consists of is their airfare and lodging. Uh, and then they can, um, and then they give 10% of their sales back. Uh, and any expenses they wow. incur usually uh, are deducted from the uh, 10%, except for the lodging and the airfare, which is already covered. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually interviewed several artisans um, over the years um, in destinations I've traveled to who, in the process of talking with them, I've learned that they have exhibited at the market um, and they've, they've each been exceedingly proud of being accepted. Um, can you talk about the benefits to participants, both generally and anecdotally, yeah. in terms of um, the economics and the emotional impact of, of having the opportunity? Well, the emotional impact is, is, a, is a big one because, you know, they, for the first time in their lives, uh, are together with 50 or 49 other artists. So they really create this, uh, this community, which gives them a lot of uh, recognition and they realize that they are in fact in a profession, whereas in their own village or town, uh, they may be seen as an outlier. Uh, so uh, the economic impact, of course, uh, you know, these people who come often uh, earn more in one weekend that they would have earned in a couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, there was a, an artist who, if I could tell you a little anecdote, um, there was an artist who came from uh, central Cuba who had been working as a state agronomer. He was an engineer working in the sugarcane industry. And uh, he started painting naive folk art paintings on the weekends and selling them, you know, to tourists at hotel lobbies and so on. And he started making about $300 a month. And so he realized that that was better than what he was doing with uh, the agronomy that he had done for 30 years. And he got into the market. And the first year he came, he brought about 150 works priced between 2500 and $450. And uh, at the end of the market, uh, we issue a check for their sales minus the booth fee, the 10%, et cetera. And so I was driving with him and I, to the bank and I, so he could cash his check. And I said, you know, I have your check here and you did pretty well. And he said, how did I do 6,000? I said, no, you did a little more. He said, 8,000? I said, no, you, you did 14,000. And so he wow. immediately got out his cell phone calculator and he said, you know what that is? That's 90 years of my salary. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's you know, one of the, the stories. And there are a lot of stories like that. You know, there are people who come uh, from Africa and are able to go home and build a school or drill a well or things like that. Mm. And you're inspiring me to ask, do they get assistance in terms of pricing their work? Because I'm sure in many of their, um, you know, their hometowns, uh, it could be, a, it, it could be very different. Yes. And, you know, the, 
there is an extensive training program. You know, the artists start, start arriving on Monday and Tuesday and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are training days. Um, we have mentor to market program where we explain these things to them, you know, and I have some experience, uh, years ago, I worked, uh, as a contractor for the Peace Corps with artisan communities. And if I asked an artist, how much is that bracelet? And they said $7. And if I said, um, well, how did you get to $7? They would shrug their shoulders. And so we try to explain to them that the, uh, you figure out how much it costs you to make it, how many hours it took you to make it, and then how much you think you should get paid for each hour and what the market can bear. And that's how you can figure out the price. Now, of course, you know, in our country, artisans are different because they go to their studios at eight or nine in the morning and work till six or seven at night, and they're putting in a 40 or 50 hour week. Uh, in these countries, um, it's a piecemeal thing. You know, a Guatemala embroiderer might have to go feed the chickens in the morning, take the kids to school, you know, cook, uh, grind some corn, cook the, the meal, and maybe in between there, she finds an hour or two to do some embroidery. So if you how much, did, how long did it take you to make this wheat peel? She might say it took me three months, but in fact, it was only 40 hours. So those those are... You have to take all of those into account. Now, the application does have um, a requirement that you indicate what your price range is. Uh, and often we help them adjust it when they get here. Um, you know, I had one artist who was making these very beautiful uh, antique car models out of recycled material. And he was selling them for $50 in his hometown. Uh, and I said, you know, you, you got to raise the prices. You can't just charge $50 for these. And the next time I went to see them, they were $60. And I said, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Right. So we sell, we adjusted the price for him in the market and they sell for 175. Uh, and that's more what they should sell like. And now in his village, if you come to him, you have to buy them for 125. So it all kind of works. Right. But how self-esteem boosting, you know, I mean, you know, there, there are many people in many walks of life who sell themselves short and, um, you know, it must just be a tremendous feeling to see people, you know, the light in their eyes begin to recognize that their talent, you know, has more value than perhaps they've, they've believed. That's right, you know, and and obviously, um, I mean, this artist that I just talked to you about, uh, you know, he's being marketed in this folk art market. If he uh, were a U.S.-born artist uh, and he was in the mainstream of the art world in galleries, these fifty-dollar uh, models would probably be selling for twenty-five hundred right. uh, without any problem, you know. So. Right. Uh, it does indeed um, help them see the value of their effort. Mm. Now, I'm intrigued by this particular type of craft that you just mentioned in terms of the, the 
you know, miniature automobiles being made of recycled mm -hmm. material. Can you give an overview of the different types of crafts that are exhibited at the market and how that has changed or grown since the market's inception? Well, you know, the first year we had 80 artists, so we more than doubled the number of artists. Um, there's a lot of interest in, in textiles and wearables. Uh, you know, people are really fascinated with ethnic clothing from Africa, from South Asia. Uh, in fact, we have this weekend uh, a pop-up sale of a co-op from Laos called Akpak Tak, and they make all kinds of beautiful clothing. Uh, they weave them, they sew them, they have ties, shirts, blouses, purses, and so on. So the, the craft range is huge. We have, you know, wood carving, wood sculpture, uh, handmade toys, ceramics, textiles, um, painting, you know, it's uh, basket making. Depending on what the tradition is in the country, that's, that's really what shines out. Mm-hmm. And... Um... I'm wondering, listening to you, um, do you try to have some type of geographic representation when you're um, um, considering different artisans? You know, are you looking for um, to ensure that there's a certain number of people from a certain number of markets and that there's a certain diversity to the type of crafts? I mean, is that a factor in the... Yes, and, that, and that's part of the job of the placement committee. Although I have to say, you know, there are some countries that, you know, are leaders in producing artisans. You know, it, traditionally, uh, our number one country uh, represented is India. Right. Uh, and our number two is Mexico. And surprisingly, well, not surprising to us, but uh, number three is Uzbekistan, ah. which is, you know, they have, you know, all kinds of textile crafts, rugs, carpets, uh, and so on, and silver work as well. Uh, but we do try to show as much of the world as possible. Obviously, we're uh, limited by who applies, uh, but we encourage our travelers. You know, if somebody tells us, you know, I'm traveling to Paraguay, we say, well, look for crafts for us and see if there's anybody there that you think should apply. Uh, and, you know, we also have, um, we have a travel program called Passport to Folk Art, where we take people uh, in groups to um, Mexico City, Oaxaca, Cuba, uh, India, uh, Bhutan, China, I mean, everywhere. And so these people are obviously interested in, in folk art and artisanry. And so uh, they keep their eyes open for us and say, why don't you have somebody from here. Well, we had a trip to Morocco this year as well. So uh, these are culture-rich and craft-rich communities uh, that uh, we, and we always want to discover uh, a new form. Uh, we have a whole section in the folk art market called Innovation, which is um, artists who are working rooted in their traditions, but have stepped out into some other uh, they're aware of the contemporary world. And so they move their traditions into an innovative way, in an innovative way.
Well, that was actually my next question. Um, you know, uh, the fact that in 2017, uh, the market did introduce this innovation category. And um, I believe that uh, this year there'll be 29 such artists. Um, and, you know, I'd love to hear about that innovation. Um, if you're able to share a few examples of um, how people have taken uh, traditional arts and kind of given them a twist to uh, to innovate with them. Yeah, for one example that comes to mind immediately is this Mexican uh, designer, uh, Carla Fernandez. And Carla works with indigenous communities uh, and selects textiles that they make and then designs them into these contemporary fashions. Uh, and so they're completely rooted in the tradition uh, of their of the country, you know, but instead of just being a rebozo, you know, a shawl, it becomes this beautiful jacket. Uh, and she uses the indigenous people to actually do the crafting. She just does the design. So she's kind of a, what we would call a designer maker. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's uh, one of the innovators. Then we have uh, a basket maker from uh, Rwanda that uh, creates these baskets that are non-functional. They just look like something you would uh, put in your living space as a sculpture, but it's actually a traditional basket. Uh, but the colors and the shape, the form, uh, really indicate an awareness of contemporary design. So those are kind of some of the examples of what we see there uh, in the innovation tent booths. We have 30, well, 29, as you said, we have a space for 30 uh, innovators uh, in that area. And it's one of the best-selling areas uh, mm. in the market. People really want to see how traditions are evolving. Right. Well, I know that um, I've written quite a bit about UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage, and I know that one of their criteria is that the traditions be living. Um, and by that, they, they mean continually evolving. Um, so, um, you know, it's great to um, bring to the world the, the traditional uh, methods and styles, but it is really cool to see how people, uh, you know, take it in different directions. Um, now, um, Stuart, you became chief executive officer of the International Folk Art Market Santa Fe in January. Um, and um, previously, as the former secretary of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs from 2003 to 2010, um, you were involved in crafting the funding agreement that helped establish the market. Can you talk about you know, the vision for how the market came about at that time and what some of the opportunities and challenges were then and, and what they are today? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was, uh, as you said, uh, Secretary of Cultural Affairs, and um, we, among other things, the department uh, has the oversight of four uh, museums in Santa Fe in this cultural campus called Museum Hill. Uh, two of them are up there. And um, I had um, a visit in my office from uh, four people who are the founders of the market, 
uh, Judy Espinar, who was um, an importer of uh, high level uh, ceramics from all over Europe and had a small store in Santa Fe called the Clay Angel, which was more like a gallery in a museum. Uh, and then uh, Tom Augustin, who was uh, executive director of the Museum Foundation, Charlene Cerny, who was the director of the Museum of International Folk Art, and Charmé Allred, who is a patron of the arts and involved in about every cultural organization in New Mexico, uh, and said, uh, <laughs> we have this idea to do an international folk art market. And, you know, Santa Fe is a festival city. We have Indian market, Spanish market, Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival, Santa Fe Opera. Uh, you know, it's almost, it's the Salzburg of the Americas. Uh, and so it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and I said, well, let's do it up on Museum Hill. And of course, that's what they were thinking. Uh, and then I... Um, we had just built this new um, museum resources building uh, and I gave them some office space there for very reduced rent so they could have an operating center. Uh, and they used that for a number of years. Uh, and, you know, I think the biggest challenges uh, for, for them uh, then were, you know, securing all of the funds, uh, and then convincing uh, the community here that this would not interfere with any of the other markets. Uh, and it hasn't really. Um, it's actually just enhanced everything. And, um, you know, with $3.3 million in sales, we write a check uh, to the state for $300,000 in gross receipts taxes. And we fill all the hotels. Um, we have a neighbor hotel, the Hotel Santa Fe, and he tells me that our market is the best uh, in terms of filling his rooms. Uh, so the the challenge continues as we grow. Um, I mean, the, the, the number of artists has doubled. Uh, the, uh, the budget has almost tripled. And so the challenges continue to be um, how do we uh, make it sustainable so that we continue to serve these communities and the communities that I'm talking about is the communities of artists in all of these countries, the community of Santa Fe and the community of visitors that come to see the market. Uh, and I think that's what we would like to be able to continue to do and, and expand it as much as we can perhaps do uh, versions of the market in other cities that could uh, sustain it. Right. Well, that's, again, a springboard to my next question, um, <laughs> because while I understand that um, the market is unique to Santa Fe um, and that part of um, the function it serves is to attract tourism, um, you know, if you take the broader view and look at uh, the opportunity for artisans and the arts um, in, a, in a broader way, um, I recently interviewed uh, Amitava, excuse me, Amitava Bhattachara, who is founder of Bangladesh in India, uh, which has also been very successful in creating markets for folk art and using traditional crafts as an economic catalyst. And 
there's a growing or renewed appreciation for handcrafted and traditional arts. So I'd love to, to you know, uh, expand on what you just touched on. Could you envision the International Folk Art Market Santa Fe model being replicated in other regions and parts of the world to spur a creative economy? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, that, that would be a dream to be able to replicate the market in other cities. You know, Santa Fe has a unique demographic. As I mentioned, you know, we already have markets and festivals, so people are receptive to that. We also have a, a demographic of uh, people that moved here who, are, who have disposable incomes to a certain extent, who are sophisticated, have traveled, uh, are interested in culture, are interested in in world culture, uh, and so that's part of the reason for the success of the market here. Uh, now, that's not to say other cities don't have this, but uh, it's highly concentrated here, and the people are receptive for to it. Uh, you could take, for example, a city like New York or Washington D.C that have millions of uh, residents, but uh, the, the demographic is not quite as concentrated as it is here. And it may not be as much of a novelty because if you take a taxi in Washington, your driver might be from Uganda or Ethiopia. So you can have a conversation with, right. with a local from one of those countries who's only been here a year or two. Uh, and you know, in New York, you could, walk down the street corner and there'd be a Nigerian selling beads or uh, a Guatemalan selling uh, scarves. So it has to be analyzed very carefully. And one of the things that we're, you know, we did have a, a market in Arlington, Texas, which may not have been the ideal city to do it. And it had limited success. Uh, what we would like to do is to create a market that brings uh, assurances to the artisans because they have to invest time, money, and effort to get to the market. Uh, so we are talking to several other locations that have approached us about doing uh, markets there, uh, and they may have specific interests. You know, we may have a city that's interested only in Latin American artists or only in women artists. Uh, and so we're exploring those possibilities, discussing it with within our board and with uh, other organizations to see what the feasibility is. Um, uh, it was suggested to me by a consultant, Gail Lord, that uh, we work with, that we should follow the Guggenheim model, which is if a city wants you to build them a Guggenheim, uh, have them do a feasibility study and show you what's possible. Uh, obviously, that's not going to be the case for us, but it's a good model to look at because we know what it takes to make a market. We have 1,600 volunteers. So can a town get 1,600 volunteers for an unknown uh, market? That's a question because otherwise you can't, run it as efficiently as we do. But we would like to also um, uh, engender a kind of confidence in the artists that maybe they don't have to come to Santa Fe every year or whatever other city. Maybe they figure out how it, how it works and they can find 
an artisan fair in their own capital city or in a neighboring country and, you know, uh, become kind of entrepreneurs themselves and procure those kinds of opportunities without having us involved as part of our training. And um, that actually is a segue into my next question. But before I move on to that, I, you know, I'm just thinking about um, uh, a city that comes to my mind just because I was just there is uh, San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, uh, which has, you know, I think the infrastructure and the population and the demographics that um, are along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, and I, I think there, you know, it would just be so fantastic if such places could be identified. Um, and, you know, really it's it's about creating a market. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, it's not that there isn't the interest, but it's being a matchmaker, I guess, of sorts. And in that spirit, um, and to touch on what you just referred to, um, the market has a mentor to market program. Um, can you can you describe what that's about? That's right. Well, you know, it's part of our training. Uh, I mean, part of it is an orientation uh, on how this market works. If this is the first time you've come, you have no idea what this is like. And we have, you know, a point of sale system, a payment system. Uh, we have all kinds of activities for the artists to uh, take part in. And so that that's part one is orientation. Uh, we have an artist conference, uh, which um, where they can choose from, you know, a menu of topics could be business management, marketing and promotion, pricing, finding new markets, et cetera. So there are sessions. Uh, it's almost like a like an artisan conference uh, over a period of two days where they can uh, educate themselves, uh, you know, if they're ambitious enough to move. You know, one of the issues with, uh, and this, this comes from my experience working with uh, contemporary artists, uh, which is, uh, you know, the old days, artists would just spend time in their studios and and that was it you know i just paint and that's what i do but these days you have to give a good percentage of your time to developing your career and that's part of what we try to do here uh, you know we already recognize that you're a great embroiderer but how do you get your embroidery out into the world so that it's not just the people that come to your house that buy it so that's part of it. Another piece is, you know, how to deal with uh, exporting. This fellow that uh, I mentioned earlier in our talk, um, who has the um, the model cars, you know, the way that those model cars get here is, uh, whenever people travel to his town, we send them down there with an empty suitcase, and then they they bring back six or eight at a time. And I have connected this artist to a shipping company. And all he has to do is talk to them and uh, and get the stuff shipped over here. Uh, and yet he, he, he can't manage to do that. That's sort of beyond his capacity. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like an agoraphobia. He's good at staying in his studio and working all day long, but if he has to make a phone call to somebody and uh, and arrange for shipping. That's 
that's outside of his uh, his scope. So I think that's that's right. part of what we want to do. And uh, and then you know we have um, kind of celebratory events, which are part of the mentor to market program, kind of like graduation in a sense from from the project. And then also you know we have a, a small smaller market in Dallas, which is a wholesale market. Uh, and it does very well for the 30 or so artists that participate there. And so we encourage those artists that are able to do wholesale uh, contracts or wholesale vending to uh, look into that uh, and see if they can benefit from that. You know, certainly a jeweler or right. uh, a weaver uh, can, you know, when the items are not just one of a kind, uh, they certainly can be involved in wholesale. A potter could be involved in a wholesale operation. Right. So there's economies of scale. That's right. Mm. Um, Stuart, in 2010, I visited Santa Fe and I did a story for the Boston Globe on the New Mexico Fiber Arts Trail, which you know, I thought was another fabulous concept in terms of creating opportunity for artisans while forging an identity for the state as an arts destination. Um, with so many traditional tourism destinations now falling victim to over-tourism, um, could you envision other parts of the world creating long-term strategic plans to build sust similar sustainable brands? I mean, you know, you touched on, on the sustainability of the market, um, but, uh, you know, you've been involved in, in other ways of um, creating that kind of artistic uh, identity for a destination. And, you know, could you see emerging destinations? You know, obviously there are places that have, you know, been visited since the times of pilgrims, but, um, there needs to be some kind of, um, uh, you know, way for off the beaten path places that might be very interesting to foster a sustainable brand. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, uh, on ways that such destinations could, could replicate the kind of things that that you've done in New Mexico? Well, you know, one of the um, uh, unique characteristics of Santa Fe um, is that it's a small town, but it's not a small town. Uh, it's a small town in terms of size and population, but uh, we have almost uh, one of everything that you would find uh, in a larger metropolitan area. You know, we have great restaurants, uh, innovative, trendy restaurants. Uh, we have music venues. Uh, so that's part of what the attraction is. You know, when you come to Santa Fe, uh, there's a lot to do here. It's not just doing the folk art market, but you can also get in the car and 25 minutes outside of town, you can be in an Indian Pueblo where there are people still living there that have been living there for 1,200 years. Uh, and that part is tough to replicate. That said, though, there are cities uh, and towns around the country that have um, cultural traditions that are unique to their area. And if they 
market and promote those, um, it could expand further. So for example, you take Asheville, North Carolina, which is surrounded by uh, a, a big um, ceramics tradition uh, and glass blowing traditions. And then there's Black Mountain College, which housed a lot of uh, contemporary artists. So if they could, if they could bring that together somehow as a marketing entity, it may become a new destination for, uh, for travelers. Um, you know, we, we don't really suffer from over tourism here. Although, you know, us locals, uh, take a breath in September when all the festivals are over, uh, because then you can drive right. through town without traffic. Um, you know, Indian market brings a hundred thousand people to Santa Fe in a town of 70,000. That's doubling the population for a weekend. So you can imagine what the infrastructure is. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, expanding on the uniqueness of your own community is, uh, is the strategy to be used. And if I could just tell you a little side story, I, I taught a small workshop class in Lima, Peru, some years ago to, um, college students who were in the design field. So we had, uh, animation designers, fashion designers, furniture designers, graphic designers, etc. And I told them that very same thing. I said, you know, you guys, if you design fashions to compete with Paris uh, and New York, you're never going to get anywhere because they, they're, they're the places that people look at, but you have a unique thing. You have uh, this uh, millennia old uh, indigenous traditions that are part of your ethnic makeup. So why don't you design starting there? And so we called it, we called the class right. identity design and the kids, I mean, these kids were amazing. The class was five hours a day and they wouldn't even take a break. Um, and they came up with incredible things. The fashion people had the most beautiful, you know, things you could wear to the Oscar, to the Oscars, but they obviously looked like they were designed by some contemporary Inca. And, uh, and then the animation designers created uh, video games with uh, indigenous superheroes. Uh, it was really quite an amazing uh, experience. And so I think that's, that's the capitalizing on what it is that is unique to your culture uh, and not swaying from that uh, too far. Right. And those are two great lessons. Um, you know, uh, know what you are and be such. Right. Um, and, and, you know, be proud of that. And, and the fact, you know, um, the best cultural destination site is about um, celebrating our universal humanity and our uniqueness. And uh, it sounds like you were giving some great advice uh, that no doubt will serve those kids in good stead. Thank you. Um, now, Stuart, you've had a special relationship with Cuba for some time. Can you share how that began and how it's evolved? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, um, I basically grew up in Cuba. Um, I would have been born in Cuba. My parents migrated there from Eastern Europe in the 1920s. Uh, and, uh, you know, after World War I, uh, Eastern Europeans were placed on a quota system and only so many were allowed into this country. And people waited 30 years to get their number on the quota. So a lot of Eastern Europeans uh, thought that if they went to Latin America, they would get pushed up on the queue. Uh, but the fact was that my parents got to Cuba and uh, kind of fell in love with the place uh, and so stayed there. Um, and then um, they traveled to the United States so I could have U.S. citizenship and not have to wait in the queue. And so I was born uh, in New York and then when I was six weeks old, we returned there. And I lived there until I was 12 years old. So, you know, I really considered myself Cuban in every way. Spanish was my first language. I didn't learn English till I was 12. Um, and so um, when I arrived, you know, I really wanted to become an American and uh, assimilate and learn English without an accent, if I could do that. And uh, then when Clinton became president, he created an opening for travel to Cuba through a special license. And at that time, I was director of the art museum here in Santa Fe. So I applied for a professional research license and went to the Havana Biennial in 97. And I was so uh, taken by it emotionally because it was a real homecoming and how people uh, reacted to my story, leaving at 12 and returning at 49. Um, that um, I started going back two, three, four times a year. Uh, and then um, because of my work in museums, I was able to organize cultural travel to Cuba. So when I was uh, president of the museum in Long Beach, uh, we took three trips a year to Cuba with various groups. And then my wife got involved with it. And now she lead, leads trips to Cuba for the folk art market to look at folk art. Uh, and uh, that's really how it is. And I'm trying now to, um, you know, expand on that in whatever way I can. We have five, four Cuban artists and one collective coming to the market this year. Uh, and, uh, you know, I work with uh, the former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, who has the Richardson Center for Global Engagement. Uh, and we're working together to try to change how the United States uh, deals with Cuba, which is, you know, basically isolating Cuba, which is not helping anybody, uh, only hurting the Cuban people. And uh, all they would- It's so outdated. It really is, but, you know, that's a whole other discussion we could spend easily an hour on that. But um, I was just there about 10 days ago for a very short trip. Oh. Uh, and what has been happening uh, recently is that there's a big upsurge in cruise ships coming to Cuba, which means the, they spend about a day there, uh, which doesn't really give you 
a big sense of what Cuba is about. You really have to spend 10 days there and go to the interior and get a sense of what the Cuban people are like, which is amazing. Absolutely. It's very high on my list. Well, um, you, have to, you have to do it. Yes. <laughs> We're I... going there. The folk art market's going there in January and February of next year. Ah. So, okay. That's, <laughs> that's an aspiration then. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, ask you, you know, given what you've just shared, um, and and maybe what you've just shared is is part of this. Um, but was there a formative personal experience that drew you toward a career in the arts? You know, I don't know if that um, might have have anything to do with your heritage or or not. You know, I really. Uh, it, it's kind of uh, you know, my father. Uh, his last job in Cuba before we left was um, he worked for the Kodak distributor in Havana. And from the time I was about seven years old, he would bring me, you know, a camera or uh, printing out paper, which is, you know, a photographic paper that if you put it out in the sun with something on top of it, it'll make an impression of that. And I was always fascinated with that. And even at age seven, I thought of myself as a, as a photographer. And so I always took pictures. My father was sort of the family photographer. And then when I um, was in college, I met a group of students, um, one of which uh, was the editor of the, the school's poetry magazine. And he saw my photographs. He says, oh, well, you're an artist. You got to work with us. And that's really kind of how... I made that leap because I never really had um, a real connection to the arts. Um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in my upbringing, arts was an, a luxury item that uh, was not available to the everyday person. Uh, so right. I think that that's what guided me there. And then so I sort of, you know, I started uh, as a working artist um, and I made a living partially by sculpting and painting and printmaking um, until uh, I started having kids. And then I realized that I needed to um, uh, have more of a steady income than, than uh, the artists up and down. Um, uh, and so I evolved into... Edu arts education and arts administration some 30 years ago um, and put the art making aside at that time. But, you know, I, I've always been recognized as having an artist sensibility or an, an, an insider in, in arts administration. And that's given me uh, a leg up on perhaps other bureaucrats. Mm. And how fascinating that in your story, um, it was really someone else identifying you as an artist that helped you see that in yourself. And here you are, you know, decades later, kind of helping uh, affirm for people uh, their identity as an artist. Yeah. That's, that's kind of yeah. cool. Um, and then can you share a moment in which you felt that, um, you know, felt very 
profoundly that your career choice uh, was had been the correct choice. Uh, I mean, perhaps you've had many thousands of those, but you know, I know for many people um, in the arts, there can be a lot of second guessing, and so you know, there can be uh, also those moments of like, you know, yes, you know, this is what I was meant to do. I don't know if you you have such a moment you could yeah, share. Yeah, I think I do. I mean, if I if I had, I guess if I'd had the the requisite talent uh, and uh, and I guess focus, uh, I would have liked to have been a musician. Uh, when I was six years old, I was sort of a recognized little piano prodigy uh, after taking one year of lessons. And then later as a teenager, I played guitar and so on. And whenever I listen to musicians, I wonder, you know, because I love the bond that that musicians have with each other when they play together. It's sort of like lovemaking. Uh, uh, and so mm. that that I don't know if that's a regret, but it's a longing, I guess. Uh, but no, I, I know that. Uh, this has been um, the right path, you know, the, the, not to get too poetic, but, you know, you flow with where the river takes you. Uh, and uh, this is how these doors opened for me one after the other. Uh, so, but to answer your question directly, you know, um, and this is not the one thing, but it is one thing that, that really helped me validate, which is, um, you know, I, I spent over 20 years working in museums here. And um, then I was, as you said, Secretary of Cultural Affairs. And when the administration ended, we were all out of jobs. And so I got a job in Long Beach as a president of the Museum of Latin American Art. And I was there for five years, uh, although we kept our house here and we wanted to come back. And so an opportunity arose for me to uh, take over the Center for Contemporary Arts and I accepted that position. And the headline in the paper was, New Mexico Arts Veteran Returns to Run CCA. And that was, you know, very, uh, it was validating in a sense because they could have said anything. Uh, but the fact that they recognized, right. you know, that I was, that I was real in in this world uh, was wonderful. And I think the same is true when I was recruited for this position here uh, at the folk art market, because, um, you know, going back to my history with the market and, uh, and for many years I had talked to the founders and other board members uh, and, you know, they would say, well, you know, you should run this market. And I would say, well, you know, I'm doing this other thing and you have somebody good right now. But when this opportunity arose, it was also validating uh, because I know so many people in this community and uh, I'm recognized as somebody who uh, has some stability, uh, perhaps integrity, uh, and, and uh, I'm in service to this community. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I really felt right. uh, was a reward was when I was director of the art museum and an emerging artist would request for me to look at their work, you know, with the idea that they were going to have 
a show at the museum. And uh, the outcome usually was that they were happy to have the critique of a museum director and an hour of his time. Uh, and that was really rewarding because then they could go back to their communities and say, you know, I met with the director of the museum. He liked these three paintings. He told me to move in this direction. Uh, and uh, that was really uh, rewarding. Absolutely. Well, and it's just, it's interesting, um, you know, as an outsider looking at your career, um, I mean, it's been long and distinguished. Um, you know, you, you, uh, oversaw a complex group of statewide cultural institutions, including eight museums, seven state monuments, the State Library, the Office of Archaeological Studies, the Historic Preservation Division, and two administra administrative divisions, and you've held leadership positions at the New Mexico Museum of Art, the Museum of Spanish Colonial Art, um, and, you know, we all need validation. You know, like, to me, that's such a uh, an impressive resume, and, and yet we all need to feel like we're valued and um, that we're contributing. Um, and, and kind of on that note, um, taking funding out of the equation, um, what do you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities for the art sector? Um, and in particular, I'm interested in um, what some of the long-standing attitudes and programming are that, that just aren't working anymore, and what some of the areas are that represent increased opportunity for community engagement and relevance. Yeah, you know, I think that's probably one of the, I mean, funding is behind everything, obviously, uh, but, uh, you know, in this country, uh, art is only valued by a small group uh, and especially, you know, when you're talking about blue chip art, you're talking about investment and uh, high end galleries and major collectors and so on. But really, art and artists uh, are more uh, artists are individuals that reflect our times. Uh, and so the biggest challenge is uh, having the public the general public uh, understand that art is for them, uh, that it isn't just for a select few that can go to museums or have paintings hanging in their houses. Uh, and I think contemporary art is moving more and more in that direction. Uh, you know, one of the, I guess one of the criteria for contemporary art is that it be socially relevant. It's not just a pretty landscape. And not to say that a pretty landscape is not socially relevant, because particularly in these times, if you see a beautiful landscape, uh, you can talk about preservation uh, and, and uh, climate protection, because if the trees die, there's no more beautiful landscape. Uh, so I think from my perspective, if I had a goal uh, of improving the arts worldwide is to to have it be understood that it is acceptable to everybody. And you know, since we were talking about Cuba, I'll just tell you that uh, one of the contrasts between other cultures and Cuba is that uh, if there is a, an important contemporary Cuban painter, everybody knows who he is. It isn't like you know the plumber is going to say, well, I don't look at art, you know, that's not it. 
everybody knows who the artists and who the musicians are. And I've gone to concerts in Havana and sat with multiple generations of people listening to what you would think would be only for young people uh, because they really have this accessibility that we don't necessarily have in this country or in other countries. So I think that's my biggest goal is to uh, make it all accessible to everybody. You know, people can come to the folk art market just to experience the, the artists and the art. They don't have to uh, buy stuff and take it home. Obviously, that's the goal because we want economic development to happen for the artists. But, uh, you know, we could probably create a day when people can just come and experience the art and the artists. Uh, and that would be wonderful for this organization. But I think the more uh, arts organizations can do uh, outreach and make their art accessible to a general public, especially young people, so that we can build a generation of people that don't feel that art is uh, elite or for a particular segment of the community. Right. Well, and I do think that that is um, where globalization and technology, um, which can be a mixed bag, um, but I do think they, they have contributed to making art more accessible uh, to a broader range of people. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, social media um, is wonderful that way because you can just click on and uh, see something that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Right. Stuart, my last question for you is... Um, um, relates to uh, the tagline of Best Cultural Destinations, which is people are culture, connecting is the destination. And it seems to me that your work is, is also about connection. In closing, could you share a message with listeners about what connection means to you hmm. and, and how to achieve it? Well, you know, having learned uh, a second language, I think connection is um, is, is more like eye contact and and a willingness to um, to make contact with another person, even though you don't speak the same language. Uh, I think um, that's really what needs to happen: is for people to understand that our humanity is shared, uh, and um, it doesn't matter what what culture you come from as long as you can uh, make eye contact and give each other a smile. I think that's what connecting is about. And I think the Santa Fe International Folk Art Market uh, offers that opportunity for people of all cultures. Right. Well, I do think that that person to person connection, you know, there's there's nothing that can beat it despite globalization and technology. Um, creating more awareness. Uh, there's really nothing that can replicate, um, you know, direct contact. Stuart, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, you making the time and it's been fascinating. Thank you, Meg. It's great. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for your good questions. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.